I first uh, heard of him on either CBS or NBC television, I made up my mind that I wanted to meet the man because I know that a man who stands up for the uh, Protestant viewpoint against great oppression such as he has, has a story to tell. Now, I don't care if uh, uh, what our religious background may be, whether it's Roman Catholic or whether it's Protestant, this man deserves a hearing, and he was not being allowed a hearing in Ireland, and this was the reason my sympathy went out to him. He had something to say, and they were not allowing him to say it. And I saw on television how that uh, he was suppressed and even jailed because he would not uh, keep his opinions to himself. And then I, the thing that amazed me, though, was the way that his movement grew from 500 people in one year to 600,000, and it became the largest and most vital Protestant movement in all of Ireland. And the reason that his movement grew so fast was because of the persecution that he had suffered. If he had uh, paid his fine and if he had agreed with the authorities not to have talked out against the uh, religious oppression, uh, he, would have never been, he would have never been placed in jail, but he was willing to go to jail for freedom of speech. And I, this appealed to me. And then when I read about him in Life magazine and then found out that Life magazine had not been intellectually honest the story they wrote about this man in Life magazine was not the article that appeared in Life magazine in Ireland and Europe. And I wondered why that they uh, perverted this story in the United States, what the intention was. If these things that Life said about Dr. Paisley were true in the United States, it seems to me they'd be true in Ireland. It seems to me they'd be true in Europe. And yet there were two different stories. Life magazine intentionally deleted most of the anti-Paisley remarks in the European edition. This really made me curious. When I saw the way that Life magazine changed its approach uh, when they put the magazine in the hands of the people in Europe who knew the story at first hand, and then when I saw the way that this man was willing to go to jail, I was re reminded of the story of the apostles where they too were willing to suffer persecution rather than uh, bow the knee to Baal. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. And as I said, whatever your background is, this man deserves a hearing. And I haven't told this man what he may say or may not say. He can say anything he wants to say. Because if I believe in anything in this world, I believe in freedom of speech. And I believe what this man has to say deserves saying. And this man has gone to jail for the right to say what he believes. And I admire a man like that. I admire a man who's got the courage of his convictions, no matter what it is. <laughs> so when I heard he was in this country or was coming to this country on a university tour, I immediately contacted Dr. Bob Jones, Jr., president of the university in South Carolina, who's my good friend, and said, oh, please let him appear once in Oklahoma at least. We're fortunate to get him just this one time. Last night he spoke in Seattle, and tomorrow night he speaks in Indianapolis, and then he's going right back home. I assume you know he's the head of a denomination the Free Presbyterians of Ireland. He is a, he's a very fine man. He eats a lot. I appreciate that. You know, that's another thing I like about him. I took him out tonight, and uh, he ate as much as I did, and that's going some when they eat that much. So we really appreciate having Dr. I.N.R.K. Paisley here. And remember this. 
uh, uh, folks, this man lives in Ireland, another country where their political situation is different than ours. For illustration, the Republicans in Ireland are the bad ones. Now, that's kind of hard to take. But the Republicans in Ireland, they're the radicals. They're the ones that, are, that are, have put a price on his head and are trying to kill him. They're the Irish nationalists. And uh, uh, so it's all mixed up. You can't, as you hear him, forget all of your liberal versus conservative confrontations or differences in this country and hear this man, if you can, from his viewpoint. He's from Northern Ireland. He's undoubtedly, as, as even uh, Life magazine referred to him, the Martin Luther of the 20th century. So let's give a good hand to Dr. Ian Paisley from Ireland. Thank you very much. I'd like to say how deeply I appreciate your words of welcome, Dr. Hargis, and also this welcome that you've accorded to me this evening. I laughed when your pastor said that he didn't tell me what to say. Well, I don't know what I'm going to say yet either, so it'll be very difficult. Uh, I don't speak from a manuscript. Uh, we in Ulster believe that the man in the pulpit should preach and he should preach what God gives him. So I'm going to do that this evening. But it is a real joy and privilege and pleasure for me to be here and to have this opportunity of speaking at Christian Crusade. The fame of Dr. Hargis uh, has also reached our country. Sometimes I say it's not fame but infamy that the fundamentalist preachers have. Well, we have heard about our brother and his stand uh, for the Bible and for the old faith, the historic Christian faith, and for his unceasing war against communism and materialism, and liberalism and modernism. And we thank God in this day for every voice that's raised and every campaigner who's in the faith and every crusade that's going forward to defend and preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's a great pleasure for me personally to be here. When I arrived here this morning, I was very tired. We were in the plane all night from 12 last night to almost 12 o'clock this morning. But I had the sleep of the just this afternoon, and after having the sleep of the just, I feel ready for action tonight. And I'm sure that you're not in any hurry away. The difference between Irish people and Americans is that Irish people eat after the service. Americans eat before the service. And that makes it better for the preacher because in Ireland they would be hungry. Well, you folks will not be hungry. You have already had your supper, so you don't need to get home for your supper. I can preach all night. And <laughs> Dr. Hargis did a very dangerous thing. He never even set a time when I should finish. The first Sunday I was here... I was preaching in Maranatha in Georgia, and the preacher who drove me out to the service, he says, now we must leave at about five o'clock. So I said, that's very nice. You want to leave at five. So they put me on to preach at a quarter past three, so I preached to five to five. And he said, but I didn't mean, he said, you were to preach to five. We were to leave at five. I said, never do that with an Irish preacher. Never do that with him. 
because we take all the time that's given to us, and like Oliver Twist, we're always asking for more. Now, I want to read with you this evening uh, some verses from the Scriptures of Truth that you will find in the first chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory of and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. And God shall stamp with his own divine approval this reading from the infallible book for his name's sake. Amen. I wonder, could we all stand to our feet and engage in prayer? Let's all stand for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are turning tonight to thy word. Thy word is truth. And we pray that as we look into the treasure of the biblical revelation, 
that the Spirit of God, the author of the Word of God, may show us great truths and show us great light from the book. We thank Thee that the entrance of Thy Word giveth light. And we pray that as Thy Word is preached this evening, that light will come, dispelling the darkness of our sins and of our ignorance, lighting us upon the pathway that leads to eternal day. O oh, blessed Spirit of God, remember our countries at this time. We know that righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And we pray that righteousness may exalt our nations. O oh, God, visit us with a mighty intervention of heaven. Send upon us another great revival. Turn the nations back to God and back to truth. And grant that we'll see in our day the mighty power of the gospel of Christ manifested. Bless this place in which we're bound. The pastor of this congregation, the work and those associated with them. Grant that the blessing of God that maketh rich and addeth no sorrow may be their portion. Now, Lord, we take the promised Holy Ghost, the blessed power of Pentecost to fill us to the uttermost. I take. Thank God he undertakes. We offer this our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have followed closely the lesson that I have read from the New Testament Scriptures, you will discover that the recurring theme of the first chapter of Philippians is the great and glorious theme of the Gospel. And over and over and over again, we have this word, occurring the gospel down in verse 27 of this first chapter you will discover the statement the faith of the gospel the faith of the gospel this of course is foundational and fundamental this is of absolute necessity, the faith of the gospel. You know, in this hazy, crazy day in which we live, there is a very popular philosophy and theology abroad that it doesn't matter what you believe. All that matters is how you behave. I want to say from this pulpit this evening that right belief leads to right behavior. That wrong belief leads to wrong behavior. The book is right. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
If he believes the truth, he'll live the truth. If he believes the doctrine of Christ, he'll practice the doctrine of Christ. If he believes the revelation of heaven, his behavior will show forth the beauty of holiness. If he believes the lie, he'll live the lie. If he believes the doctrines of the Antichrist, he'll live the doctrines of the Antichrist. And we must, first of all, in this day, establish the foundation of the historic Christian faith. I am a committed, and I am unapologetic in this, I am a committed, rigid fundamentalist. I believe in the foundation. I stand upon this foundation. You know, in our country, the liberals and those that are sympathetic with the liberal theology and modernism, as we call it, they say, no, we are evangelicals. I always say yes with the emphasis on the jelly. You're well set indeed. Yes. So today... We have got to take our stand upon the fundamentals of the faith. This is basic and fundamental and foundational. And until we establish ourselves on the basis of the faith, there can be absolutely no progress and no blessing. The faith was not delivered to the scholars was not committed to some university or some seminary, but the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. And every saint of God is a repository of the mighty faith of Christianity. And thank God today we have in our hands the revelation of the faith. And from the first in Genesis, to the last day, man and revelation, we accept this book as the Word of God. We don't come to it with questions. We don't come to it with doubts. We come to it with childlike faith, and we say of it what David said of Goliath's sword, there is none like it. Give it me. I'm reminded of the story of the old Quaker woman who was going to church one Sunday morning. And she had a big, big Bible under her arm. And coming down the sideway was a camouflaged infidel. If you don't know what that is, that's a modernist preacher, a camouflaged infidel. And he said to this little Quaker woman, he said, Ha, ah, you've got a Bible in your hand. She says, Yes, I've got the Bible in my hand. He said, Do you believe it from cover to cover? She says, yes, sir, I believe in it from cover to cover, and I believe in the covers, for it keeps the pages clean. <laughs> ah, he says, you're one of these fundamentalists. You believe in the Bible. Do you believe the story that the preacher was swallowed by the great fish? Oh, says the little woman, certainly I believe it. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ confirmed it, didn't he? And she said, what's more, when I get to heaven, I'll talk it over with Jonah. And Jonah will tell me all about it. Ah, says the preacher, I've got you. Suppose Jonah's not in heaven, what will you do then? 
She said, then, sir, you can do the asking for me. My dear Christian friends, we stand upon a great foundation. We stand upon the impregnable scriptures of truth, the faith of the gospel. If you look with me at verse 5, you'll find another word, fellowship in the gospel. And there can be no fellowship in the gospel without the faith of the gospel. Now, this is a day when we have all sorts of talk, haven't we, about fellowship. And uh, we have all sorts of theories about fellowship. Now, I want to tell you that there's a great difference between fellows in a ship and fellowship. And the World Council of Churches, they have fellows in a ship, but they haven't any fellowship because they haven't any faith. And they themselves confess this. The secretary of the World Council of Churches, the first secretary, had this to say of the World Council of Churches. He said, the symbol of the World Council of Churches is a ship. This is fellows in a ship. It is a new type of craft. Never was one like it before. Never be one like it again. It's a new type of craft. Never before have Christians of so wide a range of belief come together, given their pledge to stay together, said in effect, they are all together in the same boat. This is fellows in a ship. This is the so-called World Council of Churches. Now let's examine this ship. You know what he says about it? He says this ship, is on its maiden voyage. Never floated before. Never went anywhere before. But it's going now. It's on the move. It's on its maiden voyage. He says we do not know how seaworthy the craft is. He says whether it will hold the cargo of hope put into it by Christians all over the world, it may be too heavily burdened mightn't even keep afloat. It might sink to the bottom. So this is the World Council of Churches. It's a new type of craft. Never was one like it before. Never be one like it again. It's on its maiden voyage. Never floated before. But it's going to float now. But we're not sure whether it's seaworthy. Would you like to sail in a ship like that? Would you be so nutty as to go down and get aboard a ship like that? Would you? And then he goes on. He says the ship is heading for an unknown destination. They don't know where they're going. <laughs> they don't know where they're going. On a maiden voyage, not seaworthy, and we don't know where we're going. No. And he goes on. He said the ship has an inexperienced crew. But it is true of all of us what a great theologian said at Amsterdam, we are ecumenical babies. So here is a ship and its maiden voyage. There never was one like it before. There'll never be one like it again. It's not seaworthy. And it doesn't know where it's going. And its crew are ecumenical babies. And then he goes on. He says the members of the crew 
speak different languages. And when the captain says, up anchor, half a dozen of them pull up the anchor and the other boys on the other side, they throw another anchor out the other side. They don't know what he's talking about. They're all speaking different languages. He says, it is almost as if our crew could not agree on which is the bow and which is the stern of the ship. So there's a group of them round this end and they're saying, this is the front of the ship. And there's another bunch round here and they say, you fellas are talking a lot of nonsense. This is the front of the ship. This is the World Council of Churches. Fellows in a ship. And last of all, he says, we begin this perilous experiment in the midst of one of the worst storms in history. So that's the final blow. Wonderful ship. Fellows in a ship. My, I thank God I'm not aboard this ship. I'm not so stupid as to sail with a bunch of nuts like that. Praise God I'm aboard the gospel ship. And praise God the ship I'm aboard knows where it's going. It's sailing to the glory shore. Hallelujah. And its captain is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every member of that great ship has been born into God's family, rescued from the currents and from drowning in the sea of sin, redeemed by the Savior's precious blood. And thank God we're aboard the gospel ship and we're going to land safe on the glory show. What ship do you want to travel in? This old hulk of the world council of churches or the good old gospel ship that's taken our fathers to heaven and praise God it'll take us to heaven. Fellows in a ship. It's nothing to do with fellowship. Fellowship is on the basis of the faith. But you see, today they say, let's all get together. And you can bring the Roman Catholic priest who doesn't believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can bring the modernist who denies the virgin birth and blood atonement and bodily resurrection and second bodily appearing of Christ. And you can bring the evangelical emphasis on the jelly. And they all sit round together and they say, this is fellowship, isn't it? And we love one another. But my, we hate the fundamentalists. Let's have a go at them. That's what they do. You know, we had a preacher in Belfast and he got up in his congregation and he said, what we need is love. We need to all love one another. But as for that rascal Paisley, we'll close his mind. Yes, this was their love. No love for the man that believes in the Bible, but love for everybody. You know what true love does, friend? Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. And if a person has true love for Jesus Christ, thank God they'll stand up for Jesus Christ. And if you don't stand up for Christ, you have no love for him. Now you will notice in the text 12, you have the furtherance of the gospel. So this is a nice little sermon, isn't it? You have the faith of the gospel, fellowship in the gospel, and the furtherance of the gospel. But you know, you can't have true furtherance of the gospel without the faith of the gospel. And when you have the faith, you have the fellowship. And when you're enjoying the fellowship, you're furthering the gospel. Oh, you can have a big noise and statistics that will blind you. And you can have all those things and not further the gospel at all. The true furtherance of the gospel is on the basis of the faith and on the basis of the fellowship. 
then this is what we must establish in this evil day. Now over in the first epistle of Timothy, chapter 4, we have a portion of Scripture which I believe throws great light upon this day in which we live. You know, we're living in a day when people say man in the pulpit should be good minister. And over and over again, we are told what a good minister should be. I had a party came to me some time ago, and they said, Mr. Paisley, we have got a good minister at our church. I said, I'm very glad to hear it. Why are you so sure he's a good minister? Oh, well, he is a good mixer. A good mixer. He can mix with everyone. He's just as much at home in the church dance as he is leading evangelistic chorus, says, in an evangelistic mission. He's just as much at home with the old apostate preacher that denies the book as he is with the evangelicals who profess to love the book. And he says that's a good minister. We have a type of confectionery or candy back at home that the children love. They call it licorice, all sorts, and Dolly's mixtures. And that's the type of these good ministers. They're just all mixed up. They're good mixers. Then there is another school of thought about a good minister. A lady came to me and said, Mr. Paisley, we've got a good minister at our church. I said, why is he so good? Well, he never disturbs anybody. He never, we never have any trouble in our church. Our minister's name never appears in the newspaper. Nobody ever attacks him. We have perfect peace in our church because we've got a good minister. I said, Madam, you get the same in the graveyard. There's perfect peace there. Yes. Where there is death, there'll be peace. But I'm glad the Bible tells me what a good minister is. And every day when I rise from my bed, I say, God, today make me a good minister of Jesus Christ. Not by the standards of man, not by the standards of Life magazine or Newsweek or some other slanted, biased, lying rag, but what the Bible says, what the Bible says. I hope you know what a rag is. There's a man from North Ireland here. He'll interpret for you at the end of the meeting if you're not sure of what I said. Now, uh, in this uh, fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, it tells us what a good minister of Jesus Christ is. And I want to read this portion of Scripture so that you'll know what a good minister is, and you just measure up your preacher by God's standard tonight. This is God's standard. Let's hear what God says. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. I love that little phrase there in the Bible. There's no room for schools of interpretation here. There's just one straight, easily to be understood, crystal clear statement here. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly he that hath an ear to hear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches what does the spirit say that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, I didn't write this portion of Scripture. This is the Holy Ghost wrote it. 
and the Holy Ghost says that in the latter days there'll be apostasy, a falling away from the fear that there'll be liars cloaked in hypocrisy, propagating the seductions of hell and the doctrines of demons. This is pretty strong language, isn't it? It's the language of the Holy Ghost. And I have no apology to make for the language of the Holy Ghost. I'm not blowing my nose or getting a lump in my throat when I quote this. This is God's truth. And this is what the nations need to hear today. Plain, unvarnished truth of God's Word. There's going to be a falling away. And we're in that falling away. There's an apostasy today. My, I could give you many examples of this great apostasy as we see it in Britain. Of course, my friend, this apostasy is the apostasy. These verses refer to apostate Protestantism. And Protestantism has left the foundation of the Word of God and has been riddled through with materialism. It's been riddled through with uh, German rationalism. It has been riddled through with infidelity. And today, apostate Protestantism is lined up with humanism, with communism, with socialism, and with Unitarianism and every other religion that's against Jesus Christ and all his truth. This is what's happening. And of course, modernism always insults God Almighty. Always remember it. Now here's a cartoon that appeared in the Daily Mail of Monday, January the 16th, 1967. The British Daily Mail is one of the largest national newspapers in our country. I suppose it has a circulation of two or three million. And uh, here is the Pope and Harold Wilson, our Prime Minister, and Brown, the Foreign Secretary. And they're having a conference and God is depicted in heaven with the face of a pig. God in heaven depicted with the face of a pig. I want you to get this. And Wilson is saying to the Pope, we hoped you could put, put us in touch with him. This, my friend, is the departure from the faith that leads to the insulting of God Almighty. This, my friend, is the very tenant of infidelity that is spread by revolutionary communism to insult the God of heaven. And in your country, you have this God is dead theology. And uh, one of our bishops in the Church of Ireland before I left, he said, that's true, God is dead in many ways today. Thank God my God's a living God. God I believe in is alive. Hallelujah. So here we have something of the apostasy and not a religious denomination, except the fundamentalists protested against this filthy, hell-inspired insult of the person of God. Because modernism, friend, is the twin sister of infidelity. And in our country, I don't know whether you ever used this expression, but you might as well hear it. We say they're the litter of the same sire. I don't know whether you understand that or not, but our brother here will interpret it for you if you can't understand it. 
Now, we have these men in high places, corrupted, apostate Protestants. One of the greatest preachers in our country, one of the most famous in apostate circles was Dr. Leslie Weatherhead, president of the Methodist Conference, looked upon as one of the most brilliant pulpiteers Methodism ever produced. And he has just given to the world what he says is his last contribution to religious literature. It's called the Christian agnostic. The Christian agnostic. And he says that people find it difficult to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. My, they're always attacking the virgin, attacking the virgin birth of Christ. So he says that he is putting forward a solution which meets such evidence as we possess. Now listen to the solution that he says he's putting forward for the virgin birth. He says there were such things as the prostitutes of the temple. And it was the custom of these young women to become mistresses to the priests of the temple. And he says that Mary became a prostitute of the temple. She became mistress to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. And Zacharias took her home, and he kept her for three months in his home. He had illicit relationships with her, and he kept her until he was sure she was pregnant, and the child that was born was Jesus Christ. That's what he said. Yes, friend. Utter diabolical hellish blasphemy. That's what it is. You know what the Christian church needs? The Christian church needs to recapture the vocabulary of the prophets in denunciation of sin. My, we live in a pussy-footing age, don't we? We live in a day when the preacher just decorates the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And when cream puff pie preaching is the order of the day. Well, you'll not get any of that here tonight, friend. It's going to be strong meat. And mind you, I'm only starting tonight. Here we have the apostles. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Conscience seared. Unfeeling. These men are unfeeling. My, it's no wonder they attack the fundamentalists when they attack the Lord the way they do. The, the master is no greater than his Lord. I was speaking once at our university, and afterwards the students were all trying to insult me, and one man asked me how I covered my horns, my hoof, and my tail. And I said, thank you, sir, for the greatest compliment ever paid to me. For if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, what will they not call his servants? So the Lord's servant is going to be scandalized and discredited and attacked and hammered. I've been having this for 20 years. I have a hide like a rhinoceros now, and it doesn't even affect me. And some of my friends, when they get these attacks, they run to me and they put them out on my desk, and they nearly cry, and they say, Are you not annoyed? I said, Not at all. I'd be more annoyed if they were saying nothing about me. My, the greatest curse in a man's ministry is indifferentism. That's the greatest curse. You know, 
the Belfast Telegraph, which is our largest and only evening paper in Ulster, they have a cartoon. My wife sent it to me. I didn't bring it. That's in my hotel room. And uh, it showed you two old ladies looking at the billposts on the wall. And on one wall it said, O'Neill, that's our Prime Minister, and Craig, that's our Home Secretary, are in Germany. And on the other poster it said, Paisley is in the U.S. And one woman said to the other, it's no wonder it's quiet around here. <laughs> no wonder it's quiet around here. Well, I think that's a good testimony, isn't it? No, when I went to Ravenhill 20 years ago, I asked a man where the church was. He said, I never heard of it. And I went home and I got down on my knees and I said, Oh, God Almighty, may everybody hear about this church. And my, they've heard about it already. I got a letter the other day sent from California and all was on Ian Paisley, Ireland. I got it all right. There's just one there. That's right. So, friends, we've got to pay the price. Let's be willing for it. Must I be carried to the skies, flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Since I must fight if I would win, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain supported by thy word. May God help us to utter that prayer tonight. This is a battle, friend. This is not a picnic party. This is a battle. And when you go to war, people get hurt. And there's people hurt in the battle. And we've got to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Dr. Hargis said to me, what's going to happen to you when you go home? I said, well, I'm going to go before the British House of Commons. Because uh, before I left, the newspaper that I'm the editor of, the Protestant Telegraph, we carried an article against an MP, a Republican Roman Catholic MP, who made a seditious speech. And he ran away to Prime Minister, Socialist Harold Wilson, and it's before the British House of Commons, before the Committee of Privilege. They're going to take this poor preacher to the bar of the House of Commons. I don't know what they'll do with me. Probably rebuke me and ask me to apologize. Well, have another think coming to them, for I'm not apologizing for what I have said. So they'll maybe put me in again for another three months. I told the governor of the prison, I said, you better keep the cell warm for me. Might be back again. Yes. My friend, this is a battle. You know what's wrong with the church of Jesus Christ? We haven't the martyr spirit. This was wrong. We need the spirit of the martyr spirit. My, our forefathers... We're men. That's what they were. They knew what it was to stand up and to take what was coming for them. And my, they knew what it was to fight. What grand fighters we had in the pulpit in the last century. Where are they today? My, their race is almost forgotten. And if a man stands up for God today and preaches the word of God and refuses to compromise with the devilry of this age, then he's looked upon as a fool looked upon as an extremist, a bigot, a head peddler. Well, praise God for every label they put on us. We wear them as badges to the fact that we're standing for Jesus Christ. They'll say everything about you. I have heard everything about myself that any man could hear. I've committed, according to certain people, every sin in the book. 
I was in a home one day, and Cole ran. Before I went over the door, the lady met me. She says, before you come into my home, Mr. Paisley, I want to apologize to you. I hadn't set eyes on this woman before. I said, why? Well, she says, I have been slandering you. And she said, I didn't want my daughter to go to the gospel meetings that you were preaching at, but she went and she got saved. And she said she came home radiant with the joy of Christ. And she said, this really shook me. And so she says, I want to apologize for lying about you. I said, what did you say about me? Well, she says, there's a prominent Christian lady came to our home and uh, she didn't like you. And she said, you were a very bad man. I said, all right, what did she say? Well, she said that you beat your wife. You were a wife beater. This was five years before I was married. I was a wife beater. Isn't that good? My, the old devil friend oversteps himself, doesn't he? Learn everything about yourself, friend. Well, praise the Lord. I am reminded of old John Wesley. He was preaching in an open air, and he says, I have been accused of every sin in the book but drunkenness. And a woman shouted out, You're a liar, John. You were drunk last night. And John Wesley fell on his knees, and he said, Thank you, Lord. There's nothing else to say about it. And he said it all. <laughs> I've said the lie. Thank you. It's all over. Hallelujah. Apostate Protestantism. And a good minister is a man who warns against the apostasy of Protestants. But you only, not only have apostate Protestantism here, you have apostate Romanism. Forbidding to marry the celibacy of the clergy and commanding to abstain from meat. And here we have the Holy Spirit linking apostate Protestantism and apostate Romanism, and he's calling upon good ministers to warn the people against this unholy alignment, confederacy, and association. And this is the great thing of our day. I don't know whether you're aware exactly of what Romanism really teaches. You know, out there in Georgia, I had five Roman Catholic priests in my service. I was very glad I had the bishop of the diocese there. And I said, Lord, thank you for bringing me from Ireland to preach to a Roman Catholic bishop and four priests. That was a great thing. You know, I made a moving sermon before I got underway. Two of them left. It was a really moving sermon. And at the end of the meeting, the other three left very quickly. So I knew I had preached a real moving sermon. It was a real moving. But I was glad I had this textbook which every priest of the Church of Rome has to study. It's one of the textbooks of Rome. It's called The Dignity and Duties of the Priest, and it's by Alphonsus Liguri, the great saint of the Roman Catholic Church. And in this book we have some tremendous things concerning what I would call apostate Romanism. It says here, Jesus died to institute the priesthood. It was not necessary for the Redeemer to die in order to save the world. A drop of his blood, a single tear or prayer was sufficient to procure the salvation of all. But Christ died to institute the Roman priesthood. Now think of that. If you turn to the Word of God, friend, you'll find this. Let me read it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of the Lord 
of our peace was laid on him, and by his stripes we are healed. You know what Jesus died for? He died to save you, friend. That's why he died. It was absolutely necessary for God's incarnate Son to hang upon that middle cross, stripped of his raiment and bleeding from every vein of his body in order that I might be saved. Praise his name. He died for me, my Lord and King. This book goes on. says, with regard to the mystic body of Christ, that is all the faithful, the priest has the power of the keys or the power of delivering sinners from hell, of making them worthy of paradise, of changing them from the slaves of Satan into the children of God. Listen to this. And God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. So God Almighty is handcuffed in heaven at the whim of the Roman priest on earth. My, I'm glad that's not the God I believe in, friend. I can say who is a pardoning God like thee and who is grace, so rich and free. God Almighty is not tied to the strings of any religious organization. My God is a sovereign Lord, willing to forgive man who shall call upon his name. Were the Redeemer to descend into a church and sit in a confessional to administer the sacrament of penance, and a priest to sit in another confessional, Jesus would say over each penitent, I absolve thee, and the priest would likewise say over each of his penitents, I absolve thee. And the penitents of each would be equally absolved. So the forgiveness of the priest is on a level with the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, friend, there's only one can forgive your sins. There's only one priest, and his name is Jesus. And praise God in the nail-pierced hand of Christ. There's a touch of pardon for every seeking soul tonight. Look to Christ and to Christ alone. And this book goes on. It says the priests are superior to Mary. Mary conceived Christ only once. But by consecrating the Eucharist, the priest, as it were, conceives him as often as he wishes. Priests are called the parents of Jesus Christ the parents of Jesus Christ. This is apostate Romanism, and they're both bound together. And in the ecumenical movement, my dear friends, you have this alliance of apostate Protestantism and apostate Romanism, and if you're reading your newspapers or reading the proper news, you will find that all of these are now being oriented towards the Kremlin and communism. And Romanism, apostate, and Protestantism are going to be married together in the great system of the coming Antichrist. No doubt about this. The woman rides upon the beast, the book of Revelation says. So we're in an evil day. Well, what do you do? Do you sit back and say, well, if I said anything, I would get into trouble. I'll have to be very careful here. Is that what a good minister does? No, sir, a good minister stands up and puts the brethren in remembrance of these things. That's what a good minister. That's the sort of minister I want to be, a good minister of Jesus Christ. Now, in my country, we're in the midst of the battle. 
And the battle is raging and it's raging all the time. And it will rage to the end of time. There's no discharge in this war. We'll be in the battle. Ireland is, is two countries. There is the southern part of Ireland, the 26 counties, which is a Roman Catholic Republic. And in the Constitution of Era, there is written in the special place of the Roman Catholic Church. And then the north of Ireland, the six counties, a million and a half of a population, two-thirds Protestant, one-third Roman Catholic. There's over 90% Roman Catholic in the south of Ireland. Now the six counties, Ulster, are part and parcel of the United Kingdom. They're still under the British crown. This Das brother's beginning to break up under me. John Knox said, it was said of John Knox, he never preached a sermon, but he broke the pulpit. I'll go home and I said a I broke Billy Hargis's pulpit when I was preaching in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I did indeed. Well, here we have the position. Here's a little country linked with Britain. Below it is this larger country that is determined to destroy us, that doesn't believe in our Constitution, is out against us. The Roman Catholic Church in Ulster has made it clear that she's out to destroy our Constitution, to destroy our heritage. We were the first British Connolly. And uh, we were planted by Ulster, by Scottish people, Scottish settlers. That's why I have an, an Irish brogue. I have a Scotch brogue. Dr. Hargis didn't know why I hadn't this Irish brogue. I have a good Scotch. I rule my R's. I'm sure you've heard that as I've been speaking. Now, Ulster is determined, or was determined, to remain British and to preserve the Protestant heritage of her father. Now, as long as the two-thirds population of Ulster stood in that book, everyone was all right. We had nothing to fear. But we have been cursed, friend, with ecumenism. And ecumenism destroys that book. Ecumenism is the enemy of that book, false ecumenism, headed up in the World Council of Churches. And so we have made our protests. And, of course, when we were a small little church, despised and rejected, nobody heeded us. Just said a lot of nutcases. Those fellows, that fellow Paisley, he's a fool. Just ignore him. Well, we just went on protesting. I went to the General Assembly of the Irish Presbyterian Church years ago and protested, and they spat on me. My coat was covered with spittles. And uh, two of us one day, one of the professors, Professor Hare, tried to kill us. He tried to drive over us in his motor car. We were just non-entities. And the papers ignored us. But you know, if you keep sowing the seed and preaching the gospel, God will honor you. You just keep at it day in and day out. And so we just plugged away and preached away and hammered away and got people saved and formed other churches and kept at it. And this little grain of mustard seed has now grown. And last year, we decided because of the obnoxious reports that were being put before the General Assembly, the ecumenical reports and the Irish Presbyterian Church had sold itself completely out to apostasy and ecumenism that we would have a big protest. And so we organized a march. Now, you can't march in our country without 48 hours' notice to the police. And we gave 48 hours' notice to the police. And the police approved of the road along which we marched and the purpose of our protest. I want to say from this platform, I am not a lawbreaker. I believe in upholding the law. Christians uphold the law as long as the laws are in keeping with the teachings of the book. 
We don't engage in riots or rebellion or outlawry. We are Christians. We uphold the law. My, when you read reports about me, you'd think that I was a rabble-rousing riot maker. That's what they say about me. You know, on the English TV, they put on a riot. And they said, this is Paisley. And I wasn't near it. This is the way they branch. And they will continue to branch. Up in Canada, they put a photograph of an old minister in the paper. And they said, this is Paisley. An old weasened up minister. And they said, this is Paisley. Now, I can't help looking like 25. Uh, I know that. I can't help looking like that. But, I mean, at least should be sensible, shouldn't they? And do the thing right. Well, we had police permission. The route was approved. We walked into town. Now, this area that we walked through is skirted for 300 yards by a Roman Catholic district. And I'm talking now about the line-up between apostate Romanism and apostate Protestantism. We were not protesting Romanism. We were protesting ecumenism. But when we came to this district, we saw a strange sight. We saw the Roman Catholic children out on the roadway. We saw the woman folk behind them making a scream. And we saw the men folk standing behind that human screen of their own children and women folk pelting us with iron bars, brick bats, steel wedges, iron cylinders, and everything they could get their hands on. Well, we had to walk through that. We called it the Pope's Confetti. Well, we walked through it, and we walked through it safely. God brought us through. Only one man had his skull cracked. But we got through. Now, we didn't retaliate, friend. Now, Brother Hargis says, you Irish people are pretty hot-tempered. That's right. But grace can temper us down. And so we just walked through, and we didn't retaliate. Now, I want to tell you something. I had as many people there in that 600 procession as could have cleared that district completely. But we didn't do that. We didn't do that. I'm just telling you that so that you'll know we're not a, we're not a crowd of weaklings or cowards, you know. Good, but we didn't do it. In fact, the police said that if we had a liked if Mr. Paisley had said an evidence that Mr. Paisley had been a fighting man, he could have cleaned all the police and the whole lot out of the road. So this is the truth of the matter. But we walked to the General Assembly. And we were going to pick at the assembly, but to our surprise, the roadway that we were to walk along was blocked by ropes that the police had put up. I said to the policeman in charge, why is this? He said, we're not telling you. And then I saw a procession come from the assembly to cross the road. Now, in the witness box, D.I. Irwin had to admit that that procession did not give 48 hours notice to the police. So my legal procession was stopped by an illegal ecumenical procession. But the illegal ecumenical procession was not brought to court. Oh, no. But the men that upheld the law were brought to court. And strange to relate, I was brought to court on a charge of unlawful assembly. How an assembly approved by the police could be unlawful, I don't know. It could only happen in Ireland. And it happened. Now, the moderator of the General Assembly, Dr. Martin, he ran away to our Prime Minister, who is also an ecumenist, Captain O'Neill, and they decided that the time had come to stop Paisley's public protest. Now, I have a friend of mine who's on the police force, and he was in the conference room, and word came from Stormont, Get Paisley! Got to get him. This was a conspiracy. Hush! 
by the forces of ecumenism, political corruption, joining hands with religious corruption to silence the man that preaches the word of God. This is what happened. Well, after five weeks, they got some sort of a case together, and they issued summonses on us. So I said, now, what I've got to do, I've got to get the conspirators into the courtroom. I've got to cross-examine them and expose this whole thing. So I went down to the court, and I said to the clerk of court, I'm going to issue some summonses. He says, are you? Who are you going to summons? I'm going to summons the prime minister. And I'm going to summon the moderator of the General Assembly and the governor of Northern Ireland and the governor's wife. My, I had a list of real dignities all to be summoned. And he looked at me and he says, you can't do it. I said, why can't I? Well, I've been here 50 years and I never had a request like this before. I said, you never met me before, that's why. <laughs> so you needn't be worrying yourself. You're going to get it today. He says, go and see the attorney general. I went away and saw the attorney general's office across the road, and the big law courts got no satisfaction to come back. And when I came back, he was grinning from ear to ear. And he had a big law book in his hand. And he had a big, broad smile over his face. And he said, look, you can't do this because to the court that you're summoned before, you've got to show cause before a magistrate why summonses should be issued. And he says, no magistrate will allow you to issue these summonses. Say, is that right? I said, thank you. He says, what are you going to do? He says, hey, you just wait a few minutes. So I drove out to Armour Road to a good friend of mine who's a magistrate who's also a Christian. I said, Albert, I have a little job for you to do today. <laughs> never were asked to do it before. You'll never be asked to do it again. He says, what do you know? He says, I don't ask anything. So I brought him in and put him up in the chair in the courtroom, and I said, no. Nah. And the clerk of the court's office, I said, Sir, you're a magistrate. I want to summon so-and-so, 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 so-and-so. He says, Why? And I showed him cause. Why I wanted to. He says, Certainly you can do it. My, if you'd have seen that clerk's face, and he had to sit down and issue all these summonses. And I said, I've got the hurdle over. We're going to do something. But, friend, corrupted politicians will not allow you even to use the justice of the law to get an honest hearing. You be sure of that. And when I got these summonses issued, they announced them to the press. And the press went and told the people that were getting the summonses. And the moderator of the General Assembly, he fled home to his manse. He lifted his case and his pajamas and his shaving gear, and he fled on the first plane to England. He left the country, and he never returned till the case was over. He got outside the jurisdiction where the summons was no good. That was one of them away. He wasn't going to come and stand a note. The prime minister said he couldn't come and the magistrates upheld it. The governor's wife had every disease imaginable. My, if you if you'd have seen the, the letter from the surgeon, she's this, that, and the other thing. She's very ill. So I got up and I said, Your Honor, let's adjourn the case till the governor's wife's able to come. And the council got up and said, She'll never be better. Never. You know, when I was in prison, the governor's wife was having garden parties. She was able to have garden parties when they got the Bible preacher behind the walls. This was the sort of thing we were up against. And when we got into court, we were faced with policemen who were prepared to swear lies in the interests of the conspirators. Let me give you one example. One man, a member of my church, Hercules Mallet. They said that he had punched a policeman on his ribs. 
And this policeman, Detective Constable Wilson, he said, yes, I was punched. I said, were you sore? He said, I was very sore. Did you go to the doctor? He said, I did. How many times? Three times. He said, you must have got a terrible biffing in the ribs when you had to go to the doctor three times. I said, who have you summonses against? He says, I have summonses against the city councillor, Councillor McCarroll, and against Hercules Victor Mallet. So he had a summons there on the desk. It was on the clerk's desk. So I had Mr. Mallon tipped off. I knew I had found out this was a conspiracy. So Victor Mallon got up and he says, Do you know me? To the constable. constable looked at him and he said to the judges, He said, Your Honor, I never set my eyes on that man in all my life. And yet he had sworn that that man punched him on the ribs and had a summons lying in the court with that statement on it. This was the sort of thing we were up against. And the whole conspiracy was hatched, what to do? To suppress our public protest against authoritarian ecumenism, which will destroy the liberty of the individual. The greatest danger in the world is monopolies, friend. And the larger an organization is, the more dangerous it becomes to the freedom of the individual. This is what's happening in our country. Destroying our hard-won freedom. See, the old magistrates, they never wrote down anything. I believe they had their decision made before we went into court. They said, you're fined 30 pounds, but we're binding you over to keep the peace. I stood up and I said, no, sir. I said, my protest will go on. And I said, as a Christian minister, I refuse to be bound over. If I had entered into a rule of bail, that was my public witness destroyed for two years. And any time there was anything happened in the city, I could have been threatened if I'd opened my mouth as a danger of breaking my bond. So I said, no, sir. He said, all right, you'll go to prison for three months. I said, we're ready to go, sir. Oh, no, no, no. He says, you'll not go now. He says, we'll give you 24 hours to think about it. I said, there is no thinking necessary. We're ready to go now. Oh, he says, I can't help it. You're not going now. There were so many people outside the courtroom that he was scared. Scared for him. That's what was wrong with him. So we had a public meeting the next day in the Ulster Hall, which is the city auditorium. And we waited until the 24 hours ran out. And then the three of us stood forward and we said to the police, come and fetch us. Here we are. And you'd have thought they were stuck to the floor with glue. Not one of them moved. They feared the people. And friend, that night, when I was going to my prayer meeting, they sent three police squad cars, 12 constables to arrest a poor preacher. My stood and laughed at the DI. I said, District Inspector, I said, are you a fool? Do you think it'll take 12 men to get me into prison? Oh, he says, we're not afraid of you, but we're afraid of the people. He says, this city's in an uproar. I said, it would need to be in an uproar. It would need to be in an uproar. Well, we were taken to prison, and of course the whole city rose. And the government were so alarmed that they put an outlaw ban on every public meeting in Belfast on a 12-mile radius for three months so that my people were not allowed to assemble in the streets of Belfast to make a public protest against my unjust imprisonment. They not only sent the preacher to jail, but they silenced the voice of protest. This is authoritarian dictatorship. But outside the 12-mile radius, our ministers got busy, and they had great meetings and great marches, and praise God, scores of souls were gloriously saved by the grace of God. 
when I came out of prison, I had the joy of constituting seven more free Presbyterian congregations. And that hand had the joy of receiving into church fellowship and my church 200 new members. These things happened unto me for the furtherance of the gospel. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Hallelujah. Our God is upon the throne. And today, my church has to meet in the city auditorium every Sunday. We run a thousand in the morning, and that hall seats almost 2,000, and many a Sunday night we're forced to close the doors. So many gather to hear the gospel. This is what God's doing. We have bought a site on the Ravenhill Road, Ardenly Nursing Home and Grounds. It cost us $75,000. And we're putting up a church building which will cost $400,000. And it will seat 2,200 people. This is what God's doing for us as a result of our imprisonment. Will you pray for us that as we go back? I had a, a letter from my wife, and she said the editor of our paper, the Protestant Telegraph, was preaching Thursday week ago in Newcastle. That's about 30 miles from Belfast. He was set upon by 20 Roman Catholic men who kicked him into the ground and he had to be taken to hospital. But last week he was able to go back again, and he dressed a crowd of 400 people. And a Roman Catholic man who owned a field in Newcastle said, I am so disgusted at what happened. Use my field as a place of assembly. So in that field he preached to 400 people who listened to the gospel. In the city of Derry, our ministers are holding a mission at the moment, and my wife says that every night precious souls have been saved. And a new church is going to be formed there. So God is marching on. Hallelujah. Will you pray for us? That God will strengthen us. We have great difficulties. I can't get a paid advert of my Sunday meetings into the only evening paper in Ulster, the Belfast Telegraph. They deny us freedom of speech and they deny us the right to put a paid advert in the paper. Now you say maybe your adverts are too strong. No, sir. When Dr. Bob Jones Jr. came to preach for me, I put an advert into the telegraph announcing he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ without any subject in the Ulster Hall, Sunday night, Sunday morning. And they refused to take Dr. Bob Jones Jr.'s advert. Simple advert. This is what we're up against. These people would deny us the right to live, the, delight, the right to worship, the right to speak what God has put in our heart. But friend, you can trample truth down, but praise God, you'll never trample it out. So let us, let us go on. And I thank you for listening to me, for your pastor for giving me this opportunity. May God bless you all, and may every one of us have faith in Christ and know the blessed Savior of man. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.